Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, hey, modern life has turned many of us into zombies. We walk around with our noses and our phones constantly on the hunt. We're not looking to eat people's brains per se, but we are, many of us at least, looking for mindless hits of dopamine from the latest headline, email, text, or like on your Instagram post. This has profound consequences for us as individuals and for the society as a whole. Even before the COVID pandemic, we were in the midst of a loneliness pandemic. My guest today argues we need to wake up to this and learn how to create human connection. If this sounds gauzy or saccharine to you, consider how many scientists have come on this show and argued that perhaps the greatest contributor to human flourishing is the quality of our relationships. So if you feel your relationships are subpar, don't worry. These are actually skills that can be developed. My guest today has spent much of his life doing just that. His name is Koshin Paley Ellison. He's an author, Zen priest, and Jungian psychotherapist. He co-founded the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care, which does a whole bunch of stuff, including teaching people like me to become hospice volunteers. Koshin is the author of a book called Wholehearted, Slow Down, Help Out, Wake Up, which is the subject of most of this rather extraordinary interview you are about to hear. In it, we talk about... Koshin's attempts to rescue the cliche of intimacy, how to build meaningful relationships and community, and what it means to, quote unquote, find your five, and how experimenting with what he calls healthy embarrassment, or allowing yourself to feel exposed, makes for better relationships. In fact, he's going to model some of that uh, quite bravely. Just to say, this is a rerun this episode from a few years back. We're rerunning a few of our favorite episodes this summer to give our staff a break and also to get some of the oldies but goodies into the ears of our many new listeners. Before we dive in, just one item of business. We've got some exciting news here. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you've probably heard me talk about our companion meditation app, which is also called 10% Happier. The app is a place you can go to practice all the things we talk about here on the podcast. And you could do so with meditations that are led by some of our most popular podcast guests. It's sort of like science class in college. The podcast is the lecture. The app is the lab. So whether you're interested in treating yourself with a little bit more compassion, having hard conversations without hurting your relationships, or pausing and taking a breath instead of snapping at your kids or anybody else, you can learn the skills here on the podcast and then practice them over on the app. But just like the college lab section Motivating yourself to actually put in the practice time is hard. Those few milliseconds between closing the podcast app and firing up the meditation app are rife with possibilities for distraction. You know, a new email, a breaking news alert, the temptation to scroll on social media. It's pretty easy to get derailed. That's why we're now trying something new. This show, the 10% Happier Podcast, will now be available inside our companion app so that you can seamlessly toggle between the show and uh, practicing the things we talk about on the show. Learning to doing, no friction between. To get started, download the 10% Happier app in the Apple App Store, then tap on the podcast tab at the bottom of the screen. One final note before we dive into this conversation with uh, my old friend, Koshin Paley Ellison. This conversation does 
include some references to sensitive topics, including the lived experiences of both hatred and abuse. That said, it all comes within the context of discussions about healing and vulnerability. So here we go now with Coach and Paley Ellison. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. Congratulations on your new book. Thank you. Thank you. What is Zombieland? <laughs> Zombieland for me is the way that we are just like moving around in our life. You see bodies moving. Like I just came from 23rd Street and you see people, they see the bodies walking down the street, but they're engrossed in distraction and they're just like hungry. And they're the, if you look at their people's eyes when they're looking into their phone as they're walking and just like, you can almost feel like the zombie quality of it. It's as if like they're going to like, that what they need to eat, the brain that they need to eat is inside the phone. And uh, it's heartbreaking and amazing. And I saw this person this morning coming out of Starbucks on their phone with their latte or whatever it was, like, and so they bumped into someone walking down the street and they were like, you, you know, without even turning away for one second. And they might as well just been like, Yeah, and it's just how it can be. Why was it so important for you you to invoke Zombieland right at the front of your book? (laughs) Well, for me, it's one of the things that I'm most concerned about. And I feel that in my practice as a Zen teacher and as a psychotherapist and as a contemplative care person, I feel that I see it all the time that this the blinders feel thicker than ever where people don't want to see really what they see. And then it's almost like that the shield, it's like a shield over people's eyes and it just feels heartbreaking. And yet there's this incredible hunger. And I feel like it's actually one of the reasons that inspired me that kind of zombie-like quality that is taking over. And that's why, like in the book, I talk about, you know, the how pervasive social isolation is and how people are so fragmented and not actually connecting with the people who they really care about. And it's one of the pandemics of our time. And I think that there's no mistake that, you know, all of these zombie TV shows and movies are constantly in people's minds. And zombies actually come from one of the origins of the term come from uh, orphan children where they're just like starving for father and mother, for warmth and care. And I feel like actually knowing kind of the archaic where it comes from is makes it even more interesting is that we're like a society becoming a society of orphans where we don't even know how to connect to our partners and to our friends. And it's so sad. And we see social isolation, you know, the cost of it, it's leading to, uh, you know, I don't know exactly the causal link here, but we see social isolation at the same time as we see rising anxiety, depression, suicide rates, especially Mm -hmm. among young people. Something's going on here. And obviously, a lot of it can be linked to the phone and the social media 
apps on the phone, but it's also just the way we live now, too. Mm-hmm. You know, Bowling Alone, that great book by the Harvard researcher, came out before the phone, mm-hmm. as far as I can remember, with the, the whole idea that we, we now – this was a famous book about how we – we used to have bowling leagues. Now we bowl alone, and this. So this is this trends. This trend's been going on for a long time. So, what do you think we can, as an individual, somebody listening to this, what what can they do about it for themselves? Well, it's a great question, and to me, the key is to really learn how to first address it and notice how our behaviors, you know, the historical Buddha talked about that our actions are our true belongings. So like, how are we actually functioning? And to me, be able to feel embarrassed and have a kind of a healthy embarrassment about how we're functioning and to just appreciate how much of it is covering our own vulnerability and how we hide because we're scared. And there's no, that is nothing new. And the, what's happened is that we don't have the connections that we used to have. So we used to be, you know, maybe 40,000 years ago, you know, in the cave with our folks. And, of course, people are afraid. But now we're afraid and feel vulnerable, and yet we don't have anyone to turn to. And I hear this more and more. I was thinking about my friend Tarona and in her oh. Tarona Lodog, she's this incredible physician, midwife, karate person. She's incredible. She, <laughs> I didn't expect karate to land in there. Okay. <laughs> she's incredible. She's a martial artist and an herbalist. She's like this incredible being. And she was talking about when people come into her practice for primary care that she asks them when the first things she asks is, you know, so who are your five? Who are the five people who right now we could call and no matter what, they would be here? And what she's been seeing since the 80s is maybe this is near the time when this really began to tilt, is that she experiences many people now saying, um, well, my sister. And then they reflect on it and say, mm, well, she's really busy. And she said, and then the silence after that is always what moves her, is that people don't even often have one. You know, person who they feel, even if they're married or <laughs> live with children and they don't know who would really, when the chips are down, who would really show up? And so she writes on a prescription pad, you know, find your five. And so to me, that's one of the aspects also in the book that I talk about is how do you find your community and really work with your community? So if you're feeling that kind of isolation, how do you, uh, you know, just feel your breath and really feel like what's happening in your life and feel your isolation and realize how much connection and care and love is important to you. And how do you widen out? By the way, this is not some foo-foo, woo-woo, <laughs> foofy, woo-woo thing here. I mean, the, the hmm. we're wired for social connection. This comes to us, we come by it honestly through something called evolution. And, <laughs> you know, there's an expression 
in, in sort of evolutionary studies, like a lonely monkey is a dead monkey. In other words, if you were lonely, kicked out of the tribe mm-hmm. uh, as an early human, you died. Right. This is, so there's a reason why our bodies react very negatively to isolation because we are not wired for this. Right. And yet modern culture has designed us – has designed, designed in such a way that social connections have become weaker and weaker and more frayed and more frayed. Mm. Uh, there's so much in what you just said that I wanted to react to. One is I'm just thinking like who's my five? I mean obviously my wife who you, you know and you're quite close with uh, because she's now involved in the Zen Center and um, my brother – but it gets a little tougher after that. I mean, I do have a lot of close friends, and but I'm just thinking, like, who, which one of them would show up no matter what, mm-hmm. and for a sustained period of time? Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, it's you're getting into dicier territory, and that says a lot about how we live now. And I'm lucky; I have two who I can say for sure will show up now and forever. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom. Okay, and I would say my dad, um, but he's got some health problems. So that's three. Okay, that's but that's probably I'm probably way ahead of the game, mm-hmm. and I'm having to think about it. Right. So there, were, there were two things I wanted to ask you based on the foregoing. Um, one is if you could dr- dig in on healthy embarrassment, mm-hmm. because we've talked a lot on this show about the disutility of shame, mm-hmm. but healthy embarrassment is interesting and it seems like a subtle. A subtle distinction that may mm. be very rich. Mm. And then also I want to ask – I just want to push you further on what we can – if somebody is listening to this and thinking, okay, wow, I, can, I can't – I can maybe come up with one, but I can't get to five or I can't even get to one. Mm-hmm. Well, how does one go about creating these relationships? So I've thrown two questions at you. Take them in whatever order you want. <laughs> well, they're great questions. Mm. So healthy embarrassment for me is so important. And one of the things that I just, you know, as I was just telling you that I finished doing the audio version of the book. And so reading a lot of these stories that I was sharing, I felt so exposed and a little embarrassed. Mm. Like I said that, I wrote that. And just to feel what that feels like, like, Whoa. Mm-hmm. And I felt so, yeah, like the exposure and it felt when I really allowed the feeling to actually feel it in my body, I felt that, wow, I can feel that. And it didn't feel overwhelming, but at first it felt like, <gasps> uh-oh. But then the more I got curious about the feeling, I felt like, well, that's, kind of like a little embarrassing moment. Wow. And to allow that. So I think that for me, that is actually maybe one of the, it goes into your second question about allowing ourselves to be exposed. It's like that beautiful essay you wrote, actually, for me about your body. And oh, So just to fill that in, I, wrote, I, had a, I had until recently a column in Men's Health. We're going to get into that in this talk in this discussion. But I wrote a column talking about how mm. I notice a lot that I have this running dialogue around, wow, I have way too much fat around my belly. And, uh, and I was just in Miami with my family. I was like, cra- you know, you were at the beach. It's crazy how much time every time I walk past a reflective surface and I'm wearing just a bathing suit, that guy fall back into this dialogue of 
quite venomous self-reproach. Mm-hmm. And then paired with that is, again, I'm, I'm nudging toward 50, as are you. And every time I look in the mirror, I'm like, I can't believe how old I've gotten. And one of the – this is a multi-front battle, but one of the antidotes – maybe antidote is too strong because that implies some sort of silver bullet here. But one of the ways in which I've worked with this is to n- remember, okay, I'm going to die. We're all going to die. Maybe that will put things in perspective here. How much time do I want to spend worrying about my belly or my increasingly pointy face? Um, anyway, so that's – I just wanted to fill in the gaps there. Yeah, but I, to me, I I so appreciate when you do that or others do that, and then I feel that I can do that. To me, it's like you know, allowing ourselves to share, even where we have gone from shame to kind of reflection or shame to kind of a healthy embarrassment. Like, oh, there I go again, like with my venomous creature inside that says all these nasty things, and to me. This is also where relationship is so important because if I'm willing to do that and you're willing to do that, then there's a possibility and a willingness to actually have a much more rich and what I think of as a loving relationship that we can love and appreciate one another in a different way and that we're not used to. And yet, as you were saying, we hunger for. We want to feel seen and heard and experienced and to me it's like where i love you know what we can do and you're asking about well what can someone do listening is really pay attention to who in your life do you want to know you and make have some experiments so see if those relationships and make time for them you know, many people, we also live in this culture where people, I hear it all the time, especially in the lobby of our Zen Center building, oh, how are you doing? While they're on their phones, how are you doing? How are you doing? And they say, oh, busy, crazy busy. How about you? Crazy busy, crazy busy. And they're flipping, flipping, swiping away. And it's just like that becomes, instead of saying, well, it reminds me of the story of my dad that actually I talk about in the book about where they're in the grocery store by the tomatoes. And this guy says, oh, hey, Richard, how are you? And he said, good, how are you? And they said, and normally they've been seeing each other for, I don't know, 10 years, people in the grocery store that you see. And they always had the same exchange. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. And this one day he said, well, Richard, do you really want to know? Somebody, this is your dad's Richard here. Yeah. Yeah. And my dad thought for a moment and said, yes, I do. And then he began to share this story about his wife's illness and the struggles with one of their kids and actually what was happening, all happening in the grocery aisle by the tomatoes. It was so amazing. And they both embraced at the end of it these people who seemingly were strangers. And yet, because they were both willing to show up, they were never the same again, you know? And I feel like it's such a beautiful example or, you know, thinking about the coffee place I like to go to and the baristas, like, I love learning about what what their deal is and their lives and their kids and school and all of the different things that are happening in their lives, what's happening for the summer, whether they're going to get to the beach or not. And 
It's about having curiosity about the people that are actually in your life. And people often find it so unusual. I had someone visiting us on the Upper West Side where we live, and they, you know, we were walking down the street, and I was, you know, not going very far, and people were like, oh, hey, Koshin, Koshin, Koshin. Like, and I was having all these interactions on the way to the, like, the next corner. And they're like, how do you know all these people? Well, they're like people in our neighborhood. <laughs> like, to me, it felt completely ordinary. It's not like we were stopping and having deep, soul-searching conversations, but we were just recognizing each other and kind of like neighbor. Granted, you stand out. You wear robes. Now you have to tell people. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're absolutely right. And I, I mean, I feel some maybe healthy embarrassment, maybe something bordering on shame that, that you know, I walk through my neighborhood. I don't know that many people, you know, and it's my neighborhood. And it doesn't take that much. No, it's so ordinary. Hello. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> yeah, and it changes the it changes the moment to moment character of your life. Totally. It's like the people who ride in our elevator at the where the center is or in our house. You know, it's like, wow, like I've gotten to know so many people, you know. And to me it's just fascinating to learn about who actually they actually are part of your life. And it's so interesting with like kind of the screens is just to me a metaphor and it could be, a, it's a symptom, but it's also an image of like, we're just like looking somewhere else when we're actually where we are. Yeah. You know, I've really tried to train, maybe this is because I've gone through your, you know, so the first time you came on this podcast, I didn't know you at all or your husband. Um, I mean, it was the first time we met, I think. I think, Yeah. And then we became friends, like, pretty much immediately. And, and my wife, too. Uh, uh, and then my wife and I took your uh, nine-month training course to become hospice volunteers. and had a big effect on both of us in many ways. And we have continued to be friends. And I think in part, I think it's multifactorial, but in part because I've taken this course and I continue to volunteer in a hospice that, that I'm trying to do better as a frosty New Englander who is obsessed with his phone to actually look up and have relationships. If even if it's just a hello, goodbye type thing with folks in my elevator in my building or folks in the elevator here at ABC news where we're, we're recording this right now. And it just kind of changes the character of your day. Totally. You know, to me, that's like, you know, why the subtitle for the book is like slow down, help out, and wake up it's just about like it's so simple in a way it's about oh you're a person hello (laughs) (laughs) and i think and that is helpful yeah i think it's it's i always like to appeal to the pleasure centers of the brain Mm -hmm. and you know and i think the buddha did this quite well and and having positive interactions Mm -hmm. throughout your day feels good. I, I, I use this example all the time. What does it feel like when you hold the door open for somebody? If you're paying attention, it feels good. So how scalable is that? Answer, infinitely. And I, or, you know, I, I mentioned before that my wife and I were on vacation in Miami not long ago. And, and the way it is when you go on vacation with a kid, I didn't know this. Now our kid's four and I am okay putting him on a plane. He's not like that annoying uh, to the people around us. And so I, we take him on a plane, we go to Miami, and 
if you're going to go on vacation with a kid, you're going to sit in the pool all day. Turns out, and by the way, you're not going to have your phone on you because most phones are not waterproof that I know of. So you're going to sit in the pool doing incredibly boring stuff with your son. And here's the thing. A million other people are going to be doing the same thing. And you're going to be, unless you really are determined not to be social, you're just going to be talking to a bunch of people you don't know all day long, every day <laughs> with their kids. As it turns out, that's and I say this as, again, as an avowedly antisocial, frosty New Englander who doesn't, like, say hello to strangers. I found it to be immensely pleasurable to sit there all day long in a pool trying to make sure my kid didn't die uh, and looking at all these other cute little kids and just talking to parents who I had never met before. Right. And every day new people. Yeah. So, I mean, I, 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 I think there's a lot to this. But, but that is – you know, you once told me that you were hoping with this book and with your career generally to do, and I hope I'm going to say this correctly, to do for intimacy what has been done for mindfulness. Mm. You know, am I getting that right? Well, it's the most important thing. Right, but we've been ha we've been having we've been having there are all these books, mine included, that are trying to scale up mindfulness, get the idea out there. But there aren't many books about intimacy. No. And so you're, that's, that's the, if I understand it, that's really your push. Mm. But this daily stuff mm. is different from generating your five. And so I'm, I guess I'm trying to get back to, and you talked a little bit about this, mm. but how how we can make sure we have a five, how we can make sure we have really, truly what I would think of as intimate relationships. Mm -hmm. Well, my hunch is that, and you know, I'm not a scientist, but that if we can actually change our everyday interactions, there's more likelihood that we're going to have richer relationships and have a base of support for when we need to really cultivate deeper relationships like the five that we're talking about. And to me, the like, people who are, you know, so tight in their bodies and so tight with their, they're not even intimate with themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, that they're not even kind of relaxed in who they are. And the other day I was teaching a group of mm, 90 physicians and they're in this wonderful training program and we're doing this exercise that this experience where people are crossing the line for different reasons. Oh, can you describe what crossing the line is? Yeah, so crossing the line is a way of understanding who you're with. And so, for example, the whole group will stand on one side of a room and there will be a line, a literal line or not a literal line. And so someone will say, please cross the line if you identify as a physician, for example and they'll cross the line and then look back. And so the people get an experience of looking at each other in their difference. And, you know, please cross the line if you have a meditation practice. And so some people cross the line or prayer practice or different things. And so we were just exploring. You did, I did this exercise with you once on a retreat as part of the hospice training program. And it was really intense, like cross the line if you've lost a child. Cross the line if you've ever been homeless. Right. And people stepping across the line who I just never would have imagined. Right. Yeah, it's very intimate. So it's like it creates a, 
you know, I think if it's held well, it really shows our vulnerability. And so it requires a lot of trust and a lot of work. I, of course, have this, like, the whole time I was in the training, I loved the training in many levels, but, of course, I had this constant dialogue of re- rebellion and complaint about being forced to do these group exercises, just to be on the record about that. But anyway, carry on. Famously so. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, but it was what was so interesting is that these physicians had the last question. I said, you know, who, please cross the line if you feel that you do not have a life that's integrated. And it was so, I mean, even now it's so moving. And everyone crossed the line. What do you, everybody's making, defining for themselves what they mean they by, what you mean by integrated. They yeah. d- define for themselves. And so many people wept. It was that one. And so we talked about it afterwards. And one of the things that we explored was that how it meant so many different things to most people. But most people felt like that they didn't, it had to do with relationships. And they felt like that they did not, they were not living a life that had really anything to do with what was most important to them. I took it to mean like you're not showing up as the same person at home as you are at work, as you are at your volunteer work, et cetera, et cetera. Well, people talked about things like that as well as they didn't feel like they were treating their partners how that what with the values that they feel like are most important. They didn't feel like that they were treating or actually living a livelihood that actually was imbued with those qualities that actually they feel like are most important and they like put like the gauntlet down for it and it was so moving and so to me as a kind of so we're talking about intimacy so i feel like intimacy another word we could call it is integration and so like that kind of a will, willingness to really appreciate our diversity in ourselves and that we have parts of ourselves that we want to hide, parts of ourselves that we want to never see the light of day. And we also have all of these things that we really care about. And how often are we actually living those things? And I feel like that more and more, and I think that that's... mm, what's so missing for so many people. But am I supposed to go around telling everybody my deepest, darkest secrets all the time? (laughs) That would be insane, right? (laughs) No, but the willingness to have certain relationships where you feel like that you could. And... Ah, okay. But again, that goes back to sort of developing your five or your 20 right below the five or whatever where you can be honest, open. Yeah. And I think that the more we can be a little more transparent, it doesn't mean we have to like share everything with everybody. That would be totally unhelpful. But learning that like that we have the capacity and can share what we want to share when we want to share it. And that we have the capacity and willingness to do it. And to me, it's just an ongoing investigation. And to me, it's one of the things that makes life so dynamic. And 
that we can practice being curious about what's actually happening and how we're relating to it. How do you define intimacy? I know this is such an important concept for you. And when I hear the word intimacy, I think of, you know, romantic intimacy. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's known for that. But for me, it's about completely allowing yourself to be where you are and spontaneous. And it's a practice to me. And and to me, when I've, you know, when I met this one teacher I was studied with in Japan, you know, one of the things that he, I felt so intimate with him, he, I didn't speak Japanese and I was living with him in this kind of remote temple on the, in the outskirts of Hiroshima and we never spoke the same language. And yet I felt completely intimate with him because we were completely in the experience together and we spent weeks and weeks together. And I would go with him no matter where he went. I would just follow him around. Why were you doing this? For Zen training, just to like learn more deeply about Zen. And so he was this incredible teacher. And so I was just following him. So we would wake up really early in the morning, and then we would you know, sweep all the temple grounds. And then we would, at 5 o'clock, we would be sitting meditation and then we would do a chanting thing and then we'd have breakfast and then the next thing and so some days we'd go out for boy scouts he was the boy scout leader as i surmised later on and so sometimes we would be building forts and things like that and other days we would be going and tending to someone who was very sick and just sitting with them or we'd be doing a funeral or all kinds of different things or just you know visiting another temple or and to me what i learned from him was that he was completely himself everywhere and felt so available no matter where he was and whether he was doing you know basically doing the dishes or cooking eggs or building forts or sitting zazen or sweeping or whatever it was he was completely there and spontaneous and available and interested. And so to me, in many ways, that, you know, he was a, a beautiful image for me of what intimate life can look like. Felt like he was intimate, like when we would go for these long walks, intimate with that. You know, just wherever he was, he was completely there. You use the word, and it's a word that I don't think a lot of people would put, would pair with intimacy. Use the word spontaneity mm-hmm. or spontaneous. Mm-hmm. It, as I understand it, that's a pretty important word in the Zen tradition. Mm-hmm. Can you hold forth on that for a minute? Yeah, spontaneity, spontaneity is a hard word to say. <laughs> <laughs> is a... It's just the willingness to, just to be like, what's needed? What's next? What's now? What's now? What's now? And so it's like the idea is that we're not living the life of just our brain and just learning how to be completely wide in our experience so that we're connected to the vast expanse of life. So if I'm just looking at you and just kind of, oh, what is he going to ask next? And how am I doing and how do I sound or whatever, 
you know, which actually I'm not thinking, but I could think. But to realize, like, wow, we're in this, like, really strange, <laughs> wild room right now. With, we're like a fishbowl, and we're maybe they're doing experiments, you know, in the next room. And what are they doing? And who is that person, actually? That's Ford, our intern who's recording us hey, right Ford. now. But it's so He's looking at us through a glass wall. We're in a studio with like padded walls for, to make it the sound good. And we've got all these weird microphones set up. Yeah, it's a strange looking room. I'm so used to it, but yes. But just to like kind of widen out. And so to me, the spontaneous thing is also just like being where you are. Then you're like, wow, check everything out. Wow. And suddenly it's a different world. And so then what I do... And how I am feels totally different. I I remember during the course of the and I've invoked this a lot and I probably will continue to the 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 nine month it's called foundations. That's the training you do in order to to learn how to be a volunteer in a hospice. And in the course of the foundations training, you talked about sp- spontaneity a lot, and it's actually quite important for me as a a morning television anchor, right? <laughs> I need to be there and awake at, at, in quick situations and have a quip ready or in, in a lighter situation or in a more he- in a heavier situation, mm-hmm. be aware if I'm doing a live interview, if somebody's saying something, I need to mm-hmm. be, able, be able to get them to clarify that. If it hasn't been clear, I'm keeping the audience in mind. Same with a podcast. It's really about, I often don't plan it. I have nothing, no notes in front of me right now. Sometimes I do. But since I know you so well, I don't have notes in front of me right now. So I'm really trying to be spontaneous. And the opposite of that, and this is something that I've been guilty of and continue to be guilty of a lot, is being so stuck in my head, planning my next thing or uh, thinking about something totally unrelated or thinking about, wow, my pants are tight. I can't believe I ate so much Mexican food last night or whatever. You know, some of that's going to come, but like how stuck in that are you really? And how quickly can you make yourself available again? This spontaneity is actually really important. It's not just like how good are you at improv comedy on Friday nights? Uh, it's, it's really like how good are you at life? And to me, it's actually related to life itself. It's just like – I think about we both have a love of cats and just like the cats are very spontaneous. Like they just like kind of are always actually in the present. I feel like my cat has some malice aforethought, some real pre-planning before <laughs> he drinks out of the toilet. I don't know how spontaneous that cat is. You met Toby. He's yeah. he's not smart. But anyway, carry on. Yes, I take your point, General. <laughs> He's a he's a special cat. He's a special cat. Yeah. Yes, I think Bianca thinks he's literally she's a physician, so she actually thinks, and I, she may be right that he's not getting enough oxygen to his brain. <laughs> That's definitely possible. Mm-hmm. Now I've lost my thought. <laughs> right, that was too spontaneous. There, yeah, yep. it's how it's how you, you were talking about cats. Look at them; they are generally speaking quite spontaneous. They're not doing a lot of like ruining the past. But I think actually even like saying like I lost my thought is a kind of spontaneous. And to me, like I don't feel ashamed a bit or like, oh, wow, I lost my train of thought there. And so just being willing to actually share what's happening with yourself first, at least, to know how – like I have no idea what I'm going to say next. And now I have no idea where I'm going. And yet I'm totally willing to, <laughs> to show up. 
in it with you, in this case, and Ford. And Ford. It's, it's massively important in a hospice context. And freeing. Yes. I was so unaware in training with you to show up at the bedside of total strangers who are dying and their family members are sometimes in the room too, so you're interacting with them too, how this idea of spontaneity and how you are going to be confronted with your own stuff in such a big way. My, in my case, like my need to be liked. I'm always doing like the special dance to be liked um, uh, or whatever it is comes up right in your face in these moments. And so the spontaneity as a skill, uh, which again is part of intimacy as a skill that you can build, which, and again, I'm going to say this, is not just something you should do because it'll be better for the world. It's something you should do because your life will improve. Mm -hmm. Back to my invocation of the pleasure centers always. Um, This is really important. Yes, and I would... And I think that, you know, it's like our secret mission of the foundations and contemplative care training is to get people to be with sick people and dying people so that actually they can face what what they're afraid of in relationship so that they can be spontaneous and intimate with the people in their neighborhood so that they can actually realize, oh, like all the things I was afraid about maybe are completely controlling me. And my normal interactions in the elevator and even in the deli or the grocery store or like my dad by the tomatoes, you know, mm-hmm. it's like all of these places in our life where our, actually our life happens. You know, the other day there was a woman who came to meet with us and she was talking about missing her, her mother who had just died and she was saying it was it was the silly text messages that her mom would send and it was the way that her mother what she missed most was actually when she would go over and spend time with her mother it was the annoying way that she would take a really long time to decide what to order on the menu and she said i just wish that i could have that time back because I miss her having so a struggle because actually she just enjoyed so many things in the menu, she couldn't decide. <laughs> and for all those years, I was just irritated and I miss it. And it's just so interesting to think about how the things that we're irritated by or that we invest so much energy into not being with people are oftentimes the things that actually are places where we can actually get to know someone. One of the things you do in this train, this foundation's training had a very positive impact on my marriage because my wife and I did it together. And, you know, I think for me, I have a lot of social awkwardness, or at least I feel it. I don't know if that's the way it comes across. And I think it was showing up at points in, I was bringing that into the, into the marriage and still do. It's not like we took this course and everything was, you know, like we were living in Brigadoon all of a sudden. But <laughs> but it helped. And um, one of the exercises you do is truly awful. Uh, it's called a dyad. And I'll put the emphasis on die uh, because I often wanted to die while doing this. But 
it is also really revelatory as well, mm-hmm. which is you have two people, usually it's two people, sit across from each other quite close. You're in chairs Neither and your me. knees are almost touching and you are not supposed to break eye contact. And this is like incredibly challenging. Uh, You're doing pretty good right now. I, well, I think actually like it, it got me on my game. I don't want to – my friend Sam Harris t- jokes about this con- eye contact thing and that he when he first started getting into meditation, he really held people's gaze. as a, I, I don't know. Anyway, I'll let him tell his why he does that. But he, he would talk about how occasionally he would meet somebody who was also in that game and that it felt like they were in – they were playing War of the Warlocks Um and so, yeah, it can get pretty intense. You could take it too far or whatever. But holding people's gaze is quite important. And I traditionally wasn't that great at it. And still, I'm not, you know, I try not to be maniacal about it. Anyway, why do you do this? What's the importance of, of this exercise? Very often when people are say that they're thinking about something, they look away. So like they're sitting there with you and they're and you ask them a question and then they look off usually off to the left, top left or top right or bottom left or bottom right from where you are. And I've always found that so fascinating. Like what is that about? And when I've asked a lot of people what that's about is that it's usually that they feel exposed because they don't know what they're gonna say next. And so it's the vulnerability of actually, I have no idea what I'm going to say next. And so we have to look away to protect. So it's actually some kind of archaic defense mechanism to not be exposed or not be intimate, actually. Like, wow. And like we were just talking about, like, I have no idea what I'm going to say next. And let me think out loud with you. And what I've learned from the bedside and being, you know, what I call awake at the bedside is really learning how. The name of another book you wrote slash edited. Yeah. Very good book. <laughs> Thanks. And uh, But to me, it's about really learning how to show up with our fear and just to learn how to feel whatever we're feeling without becoming what we're feeling. And it's easy to do that by yourself. Or I'm going to do a meditation about it. I'm going to think about being with my death or I'm going to think about being with my fear and working with those feelings. And it's a totally different challenge and to do that in relationship, to actually practice, whoa. And there's a reason why the Buddha in all his teachings he never said go off by yourself forever and do that. So he was always talking about the you know the three aspects of you know I talk about them in the book about you know awakeness, receptivity and community. So how do you like really allow community and receptivity in it? And so we do these dyad experiences to actually help each other remember actually kind of going back to what you were saying earlier, that actually it feels good. It's difficult and might be, we may also not like it at the same time, but there's something about, wow, just sitting with someone 
not really doing anything, but just being together. Oh, I was freaking out the first couple <laughs> times I had to do it. And then I'd be looking at somebody who was also kind of freaking out. Their face is like breaking out in like involuntary ticks. Uh, you know, it, it's really a strange thing. You would never let me do it with Bianca. You, ne- you didn't want us to sit next to each other or do these exercises together. But I did find – or I remember my son was really young at the time and – and I would sometimes do – I would curl up with him in his crib and just stare and see how long the staring contest could go. He was really good at it. I don't know if – I haven't tried it with him recently. But I did find that in my conversations with Bianca, I was – we were more looking at each other. She actually doesn't have real – real. I was the one who was more blocked uh, on the intimacy level of, uh, than her. So, I, But I did find that that was creating greater connection as much as I – actively hated the exercise while doing it. And over time, I relaxed into it. It's the first couple of times you do it. Yeah. It's, it's tough. Much more of my conversation with Coach and Paley Ellison right after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher, and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. We've talked about meditation a little bit. Let me raise it in this context. One of the things I thought I heard you say as we've gone here is that one of the steps toward having greater intimacy in your life, in other words, greater connection with other human beings, which we are wired to need, is to be okay with yourself. Hmm. And so in that context, is meditation really important? Can we do what you're talking about without meditation or is meditation really helpful? I don't know if you can do it without meditation. Um, yeah, so I, I'm not totally clear. But for me, meditation is this amazing way to really learn how to be in your experience. I don't know another way that has taught me how to stay and widen out into my experience and soften into it, even what I thought I couldn't bear 
And to me, that's one of the key parts of meditation practice is actually learning how to bear what I think I can't bear. So like, for example, and I talk a lot about this in the book about, you know, these moments of like incredible sadness and sorrow that I ran from for a long time and that I needed to turn towards it. I had to turn the light towards where it isn't, as my friend Marie would say in her one of her poems. Marie, how? Yeah, yeah. You know, turning the light to where it isn't is like to me what meditation practice is in some ways. It's like that's part of it. So it's about allowing whatever's arising. So great sadness, great fear, and learning how to feel it and returning to the breath. It's incredible. I feel like in many ways I was talking with a student the other day about it feels like a superpower training. And to actually learn how to feel whatever you're feeling and come back to the softness in your belly, two inches below your belly button, to me is like one of the most powerful ways to learn confidence that you can be with whatever is arising and just come back. You talked about two inches below your belly button. That's it's called the hara. Is that mm-hmm. right? If I yeah. recall from training, yeah. that I don't think that's invoked in, in a lot of the meditation techniques that are, my listeners may have heard before. So, can you hold forth on that a little bit? Yeah. So the hara is a place of focus in Zen meditation, and so. It's a place so they're very rooted in our body, and so it's almost thought to be the center of the body. And what I experience is that it allows my allows my experience of meditation to be fully embodied. So I feel like I'm re- really deep in my own body, where we actually happen to have this vessel for a time, and allows me to have the experience of the breath in the body, deep in the body. And there's something very different that happens. I always encourage people when, you know, physicians or different folks that I have the honor to teach that, you know, just if you've never done before, just put your hand there and just see what happens to the quality of your mind when you focus your attention to that place we call your hara, two inches below your belly button, and just see what happens. So it's a kind of amazing thing. And for many years, I thought I was like really good at meditation, actually. And (laughs) (laughs) I felt like I was, I had sat many long retreats, and I was kind of pretty full of it um, for a while. This is an example of healthy embarrassment. (laughs) It was... Yeah, I thought it was like a, I was a really helpful person and really, you know, there to help other people. And it was actually through starting to do contemplative care that I started to realize like what a jerk I was and what I, I actually would walk down the halls of the hospital where I was interning and feeling like, wow, you know, I'm how secretly lucky I felt those people were that I was coming down the hall <laughs> to meet with them. Like it was almost like a nightmare 
and yeah, the healthy embarrassment of just like realizing, oh, like I was trying to be like rainbow bright or, you know, hello kitty with, you know, riding on top of my little pony (laughs) into the rooms and bringing all this good stuff. And to me, it's about, I was not in my hara. I was like all in these ideas about my practice, about my meditation practice. I realized like, and I was after like 10 years of long retreats and I was not even in relationship to where I was. And I was being a total jerk. <laughs> like I was, and I'm not even realizing it. And it wasn't until, you know, going into my first room when I realized, you know, what, <laughs> what an <laughs> I was, really. You know, I was just, I was, but using it with this like shiny exterior as if I wasn't an And, you know, it was like going into this room when I couldn't see the woman. And I'd hear from behind me, hello, sexy. This uh, this is the story you tell in the books, actually. Let me just set this up. You had spent many years training as a Zen priest, and then you decided, really as a consequence of uh, your grandmother's, Mimi's death, which again, you, you talk about, you tell the story in the book me, about Mimi, um, and you cared for her. You decided quite bravely, I thought, to cave, to care for her in her final days. You had a very close relationship with her. And she encouraged you and Chodo, your boyfriend at the time, now husband, to to really formalize this work of what you call contemplative care. And so you started working in hospitals, and now you're about to tell the story of the first room you – or one of the first rooms you walked first into. one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so I walk in, and I'm, there I am, rainbow bright, and <laughs> uh, it's – yeah, healthy embarrassment. Yeah. And I hear from behind me, hello, sexy. And I felt mortified. I couldn't believe, like, she could not be talking to me. And I turn around and she's like, come over here. She's like patting the bed. She's like, come closer, Bobby. And I was like, oh my God. It's almost like that. Like the whole veneer of the whole situation had cracked. And I remember like the pit in my chest. Feeling like I can't believe this is happening. Who was she? She was a patient in this hospital. And I sat down eventually and she's like, oh, you know, you're sexy and handsome and this and that. And I just, you know, I just felt... If I could have put my head in my hands and cried, I probably would have. But somehow I was able just to stay with her. And then I just, something shifted. Something shifted in me where, and I felt like actually I came back to my breath and my heart. Oh, wow. And the training kicked in. Yeah. And I remember actually putting my hand there. And I looked at her. And she's and I was saying, so, flirting, huh? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to go there. And she's like, absolutely. And, I, <laughs> and so we, she started, I said, so tell me about the first time you flirted. 
And she started telling me the story about growing up in Puerto Rico and being at the beach and feeling sexy in her bikini and how all these guys were really into her and how great that was. And how. And as she was telling the story, she totally came alive and how important that was for her. And she said there was always, I don't know if I wrote about this in the book, but she would talk about like that she felt beautiful like the Virgin Mary, that she was like adored and how important that was for her and, and how that actual, her sexuality was connected to her spirituality. And it was while she was saying that, saying this, I realized and looked at her and that her body stopped just below her hips. And that the reason she was in the hospital was that she had both legs amputated due to diabetes. And I remember feeling the humility and maybe moving from shame to healthy embarrassment to just realize like, wow, when I was so caught up in my rainbow brightness, which looks good, I didn't even notice who this woman is mm -hmm. and what she clearly is experiencing and what I'm experiencing. <laughs> you know, I have two things I wanted to say based on that story. One is, um, I think it's really helpful for people to hear that you can do a significant amount of meditation and still be an idiot. And, <laughs> and I, I mean, I Big see time. this every day in my own life. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about other people here. I'm talking about myself. Yeah. And this is not a panacea, right? In many ways, that's why I'm Mr. 10% and stuck with math jokes the rest of my life. Um, but, you know, that, that's, that really gets at what I was trying to get at with that title. And I think it's a really useful thing to hear, especially from a guy wearing robes. Mm -hmm. The other thing is this whole idea of soft belly. So I don't meditate in the same style that you do. I don't, the hara is not a big part of my daily formal practice. But you talked in the, in the foundations course about having a soft belly. And I notice that I come back to that a lot, especially if I'm in a difficult conversation. Mm -hmm. So it gets me grounded in the situation in a way that takes me out of the racing mind mm -hmm. and puts me right there. So I just wanted to make those two comments before I move on to a question I've been meaning to ask you since the beginning, which is you mentioned, or since close to the beginning, you mentioned that you had some time recently where you were reading the audio version of your book, Wholehearted, mm -hmm. and um, there were a few moments where you were thinking, oh my, I can't believe I admitted that. What was the most shocking thing to you upon rereading or reading aloud your book that you admitted? Because you do talk about some very personal things. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, so I think that for me it was a few things. And one was talking about the difficulties and that I grew up with, you know, experiencing and witnessing, you know, various levels of abuse, sexual abuse and physical abuse and verbal abuse. And I witnessed that as a young person. And somehow just saying that. Is witness the right word? Some of it I witnessed and some of it I experienced. Yeah. yeah. And... Yeah, both happened. And 
there was something about just that sentence and saying it out loud. Something that I had never said before was incredibly powerful to me. And there was just something about it. And I remember my friend Matthias, who is the sound guy, the sound engineer, the producer of the audiobook, was also you know, looking through the window where Ford is and and with a tear in his eye. It just was like there was just something about sometimes just saying what happened without even needing to get into the detail of it is so poignant. And and so powerful. And I feel that many of us live in shame around things that we've experienced. And especially, in particular, men. I think that, you know, a friend of mine is on the board of an organization called One in Six about men who have experienced uh, sexual violence and that one in six men have experienced that. And so there's this, and there's so much shame around it. And to me, just saying it was really important and healing and the beginning of something new. And and I never, I'd, you know, I've given talks about it and I've done other work around it clearly. And, but there was something about it being written in a book that's out in the world that felt like an undoing spell. And I felt like that somehow, like, I think Kafka talks about it, like it's like the axe that breaks the frozen ocean. And I felt like that. And uh, I'm so glad. Yeah. Another thing you talk about in the book is that you have you had a troll hmm. tell me more yeah for 18 months I had a troll and so someone who is you know a tr- for those who don't know what a troll is it's a someone who anonymously uses the internet to abuse people, basically. And so this person, for 18 months, was writing to me initially and then to many people that I know and then also masking themselves as very people who are important to me in different ways and using their names and basically sending tons of very anti-Semitic, homophobic, and hateful things. You know, really, we had three buckets of hate, which were, you know, anti-Semitism, homophobia, and that I'm not a real Zen teacher. And uh, and it went on for a really long time. And I made police reports. and But really, during that whole time, one of the most challenging parts about it was I felt like, whoa, like my practice, my meditation practice felt immensely challenged. And the place that I felt like I had gotten to, if there was ever a getting to of this, I, it was just showed me I was in another idea of my practice about how I was doing. And I really believe that there's no arrival. 
but I really keep seeing these different places, these little stations that I find part of my mind parking in. And because there are so many times that were so difficult where, you know, sometimes this person would be, you know, sending these horrific messages. So I'd open the messages because they were like from you or they were from Chodo or like from all these people that I know and relate to and would get emails from. And <laughs> and then you'd open it and it'd be like this horrific thing. And, uh, and then there were so many times where it was just, you know, just so wearing and so exhausting. It felt like the onslaught of the hatred just felt so depleting and it was really talk about soft belly practice it just felt like that was the time where i really had to really dig into getting real about my practice about really what does it mean to be to actually practice compassion what does it really mean when someone hates you and you know, I'm working with my teacher, which I'm so grateful for. And and uh, your teacher, Diane Friedman. So she's this amazing woman, and she's a Dharma successor of the writer Peter Matheson, and uh, an amazing woman in her. He wrote the Snow Leopard. Yeah, yeah. And really working with her very closely about you know how do I work with this, you know, receiving this hatred. And how do I not let it overcome me? And, whoa, I talk about, like, getting into, like, a low... I needed to get into a low gear. You know, thinking about a shift car, you know, like a... And learning how just to, like, really take it moment by moment and really getting curious about the... Because many times it felt like an infection... And that was coming in, and how do I really work with that infection? And, you know, that was their goal, was to, you know, create havoc and hatred. And so to me, it really was probably one of the most strangely important times of my practice, and we're really getting clear about what compassion is. And if the compassion doesn't include for this person who I didn't know at the time who it was, then I wasn't, in my view, actually practicing. Mm -hmm. it, was lim it was limited compassion. Yeah, right? it was like some idea. This like, person, we should say, has been caught and you're not being trolled as we speak. Yeah, so the person, so yeah, so I still, you know, part of the practice too is responsibility and accountability for myself and other people, which I believe in. And so, yes, yeah, so the person was arrested and taken out of their home and handcuffs and was charged with the criminal charge. And uh, so that did happen. And, and you're not saying your compassion for this person doesn't indicate that there should be no accountability. Exactly. You could do both at the same time. Exactly. It feels really important. But to hate this person to me is not where I want to go. Well, I was really interested because you, you talk about a bunch of things that would be sensitive for anybody to talk about 
experience sexual experiencing sexual abuse, having a troll, um, experiencing venomous anti-Semitism as a child, where you grew up, and for a while you were living in a place where there was a lot of anti-Semitism, and then you actually go one level deeper, which is to talk about how you have you you have a victim mentality, mm-hmm. and that that has shown up in difficult ways in your interpersonal intimate relationships now yes yeah to me that was the ongoing power of the practice to me is to really look at myself really honestly and to look at that my and i feel like actually in some ways it's my own and part of it's inherited this kind of victim uh, mentality where I would isolate myself because I felt like I would never be really understood or, you know, I was being picked on. But actually, as a young gay kid and a young Jewish kid, that was the case. So it's also, to me, the moving from kind of the feelings of shame, right, to feeling like there's something wrong with me, as opposed to like, wow, I can sometimes use this victim identity as a way to separate myself and actually not practice compassion. And it was a really interesting and important, and it keeps showing up, you know, this turn of seeing that, being willing to like, you know, turn the light to where it isn't, to like, okay, am I using this experience with the troll to say like, oh, you see, you know, I'm being victimized again, you know. and But actually, there was something about really feeling and learning about compassion in myself at the same time as using the police and having amazing relationship with the assistant district attorney and who actually taught me a lot about compassion and... It's an incredible person. And so I think it was both feeling what I was experiencing from the troll and what I was experiencing towards the troll, as well as engaging what is correct, what I deemed as correct, which was pursuing justice, um, criminal justice. And I think it was that experience that actually shifted that whole victim stance in my life, which I didn't actually realize until this moment. And what does that mean to you to have that shifted? Um, That there's actually that I'm not helpless. And that it feels like an aspect of my personality that comes out and that part has felt helpless and was in many moments in fact helpless and in fact no one would at times believe that person or I didn't have the resources to combat the situation or deal with it in a different way and I think this experience was so important with this troll is that I did have resources, and it was not the only story. And I feel like it's also because it's my own. (laughs) 
I think it's my own understanding of what it means to kind of grow up. You know, the wonderful teacher and friend Norman Fisher talks about, you know, it's about learning how to grow up and learning to take care of that little guy. And we all have some kind of little person with us who carries a very old story. We all have one. And the tenderness and learning to feel love for that aspect so as part of our whole. As part of our, kind of going back to those doctors, that integrative. It, like, we has to include him. And it has to include the troll. And it has to include everybody. I mean, to me, that's the shift that is possible. And to experience that, even like right now here with you, it's just, it's so tender and so important. And to me, that's actually what also what intimacy is like in some ways, like you're doing your job, but also like we care for each other and in learning to ask questions that also are not you know, easy to ask and be willing to answer them. To me is also, it's kind of like a, you know, when I was in high school, I was walking down the street. No, I was in college. I was walking down the street with my friend Liz and she just turned to me and said, you know, who gets to know all of your sadness? And I remember feeling, it was like another one of these moments where I felt like, who asked that kind of wise question in college? She said, "My friends were like, who's paying for the keg tonight?" <laughs> but what, how, we had very different friends. <laughs> She's an amazing woman, and uh, yeah, I remember feeling completely dumbstruck by that moment too, and so appreciative. And it was like the beginning of me doing a lot of work and actually going deeper both in my own meditation practice as well as going to psychotherapy. Like I felt like, whoa, like I don't have the skills to even know how to answer that question with the dignity of it. Like the question was like, and it's such... To me, like the bravery of asking real questions is an act of intimacy and love. And, and it came clearly from a very loving place. She was really curious. To, to bring this full circle, back, just to, to go back to the, what you're saying, that we all have this little version of ourselves that's got these stories you've you've used the term you use the term during the foundations course of we have this black bag that we're carrying with us and all of this pretty dark stuff is in there whether we know it or not and if you don't know it it's going to just show it's bleeding all over the place in into your behavior and showing up all the time and so for you victim mentality was in your black bag totally. and it sounds like being victimized as a grown-up who had the resources to stop the victimization, shifted that and probably will have knock-on benefits for your marriage, for how you are with your friends, for how you are in your work with this center, this center, New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care, and all of the endeavors therein. 
that's a big deal. I mean, it th- going to it goes right at your core thesis of intimacy. Yeah. And that you can't really be intimate if you're not looking in a black bag. You have to look at your Yeah. And to me it's like and you never arrive. That's one of the things my teacher always says and I she said no arrival. So you can't walk around and be like, "All right, well that that box is checked." <laughs> Done. No, cuz that just creates like a bigger bag. <laughs> right. Because then you're just basically putting it back in the bag. But to me, the kind of that's why I love the word wholehearted, you know, where the book comes from. But it's like comes from Dogen, from an old Zen guy who just felt like that's the life of like when you allow the 10,000 things to flow. And so you're not, he didn't say, well, the way to practice is to control everything and to know everything. But he was allowing, you know, 10,000 is like the Zen thing for. A lot or infinite, just to allow things to flow, to like be in life, or kind of goes back to the whole idea and experience of spontaneity and intimacy. You know, it's just, it's so, to me, the possibility is incredible liveliness in the face of horror and joy. I think I heard my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, recently when I was quizzing him about enlightenment, saying that, that there's, that there's an element to it of lightening up. Yeah. It's like you're just the if you if you're not gripping so hard and you're letting all of the you you made this reference to the 10,000 things that's a reference to the fact that there are 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows that happen in any given life. Can't remember who said it. But if you're letting them all come and go with some ease, mm-hmm. lightness, mm-hmm. well that's that's one way to define enlightenment. Right. Let's just close by uh, being a little crass, which is that I always like to give people an opportunity at the end of the podcast to plug everything. Mm-hmm. So um, this isn't you trying to be um, self-promotional. This is me pushing you to be self-promotional. <laughs> uh, we call it the plug zone. So can you just plug the book, plug the book before it, plug where you are in social media, plug the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care, just give us everything. Okay, so the new book is called Wholehearted. So, so <laughs> you know, I never like doing this. You, know? <laughs> so you want the, me to do it for you? <laughs> so the new book is called Wholehearted, Slow Down, Help Out, and Wake Up. And it's available now. And as well as the first book I edited, which is called Awake at the Bedside, Contemplative Teaching, Some Palliative and End-of-Life Care, which is a book of wonderful writings by many doctors and Buddhist teachers about how to be intimate at the bedside. And I'm on social media from Twitter to Instagram and Facebook and what else? At, at Koshin Paley Ellison. Mm-hmm. And New York Zen Center for New York Zen Center Care. for Contemplative Care, what I co-founded with my husband. And it's the address is zencare.org. And we actually have our own podcast, which is Zen Care Podcast. And I'm delighted to be here. Great job. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Koshin. Always great to see him. This show is made by Samuel Johns, DJ Kashmir, Kim Baikama, Maria Wortel, and Jen Poyant with audio engineering by Ultraviolet Audio. We also got special help on this episode from Palace Shaw. Thank you, Palace. 
As always, a hearty salute in closing to my ABC News colleagues, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. (laughs)